You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Hey. So if you're just joining us, uh, maybe you're a guest or you haven't been around the last few weeks, let me catch you up. You are joining us halfway through a preaching series called Utopia. And so we are looking at what Christianity and the Bible says about heaven. Specifically, we're sitting in the last book of the Bible, um, a book called Revelation, and we're in chapter 2. Let me kick off by saying um, a picture's going to come up on the screen. If you're a fan of Breaking Bad, you may remember there's a scene with a huge stash of money in a vault, and a guy just thinks, you know what? There's so much money, I feel like I should just lie on it like it's my bed. I don't mind confessing that every now and then I have wondered, what would it be like to win the lottery? So there's $80 million that this big guy's lying on. What would you do if you won the lottery? So part of the utopia question is to say, most people would say, if they're a Christian, if they're a part of a world religion or not, they want a better world. Maybe they want a better life for themselves, or maybe they think the world could get better. So if you add $80 million, maybe you could make your own life better, but equally maybe you could be entrusted, who knows, to make the whole world better. In a way, everyone has an idea of a utopia. That's a world which is ideal, an ideal world which we crave, a concept of a state of things where everything is perfect. So daydreaming can reveal what you think utopia or perfection could be. It might be that you've been watching The Apprentice this season or other seasons, and you think, you know what, if I could just work for Alan Sugar, if I could be one of these great guys looking back there, maybe power and influence and a cracking job, I'm fed up of being bottom of the food chain at work. Maybe if I just had some power and influence, my life would be pretty much perfect. Maybe you're not wired that way at all. And so this next picture, you've been watching Planet Earth 2, and you think, if only I could be this guy on a desert island, just swimming around, having a great time. Seriously, some of us might think that just escaping from the busyness of London and life, just to be living on the beach and swimming like this guy, would be utopia. And so I think daydreaming can say a lot about what you think perfection would be. All right, past um, TV then. So four pictures of some films that I like are going to come up. So these are films that came out the last few years that I like Interstellar in the top corner. I've just thought sometimes when you're watching a film, you get a message that this film is saying the world will be perfect if. And so Interstellar says the world is pretty much falling apart, but with enough scientific discovery and exploration, maybe we'd even find a better world out there. Boyhood is in this top right. So boyhood, kind of the message really that it preaches is that if your family sticks together, if we could just be with the people that we love all the time, the world would be sorted. That would be some type of utopian reality. Bottom left is a rom-com. Please forgive me. I know, you know, not all guys are into rom-coms, but About Time is a film I did really like the last few years. Eight out of ten, I'd say. And About Time, the message is if you could have all the time in the world, Even maybe repeat every day and just relax and do everything knowing you've got all the time in the world. I know some of us live in London think that that really would be utopia. So maybe you daydream about doing that. And then this one, I just put on for a bit of fun, The Martian with Matt Damon. I think essentially the message of The Martian is you can garden your way to utopia anywhere on the universe. So he does a lot of gardening if you've seen that one. We're naturally built to lean towards wanting a better life wanting things to get better. It might be that even you're here and you think, I think about what life would be like if there's an afterlife, perfection. Maybe you're a Christian and you think that. Maybe you don't even believe in God, but you've wondered that before. 
The Bible says that we are made in the image and likeness of God. So even before we get open into this passage in Revelation, let me just say a desire to want the world to be better is a good thing. And we are imagers, we are reflectors, mirrors of the character of God sometimes. And actually, God is about things getting better too. So in the Bible, we read about God having a picture of a utopia of heaven, if you like, where there's no death, where there's peace and not war, where there's no hunger and no lack. On an experience level, there's no tears, no fears, no pain, no hurt, no loneliness, no grief. We've been talking about heaven in this series. I want to cover some quick myth busters. So this utopia that God talks about, number one, we don't necessarily read about babies in nappies floating with harps or with little cupid arrows. That's not one of the key elements of heaven in the Bible. Another thing that's not a key element is a set of gates made of pearl with a guy called Paul standing outside. Let's just do some myth busting right now. There's also not lots of talk of clouds or floating. There are actual, this might be a surprise to some of you, actual buildings actual roads. It's a physical nature to it as well. So those are some freebies before we get into the passage. (laughs) My two goals in looking at the passage today are, one, if you're a skeptic, or maybe you would say you're not Christian, that maybe you might feel like you are searching for God, searching for a higher power, searching for some spiritual significance. And what I want to say to you today is that if you're wondering what that God might look like, or what a spiritual experience might look like, what a world that he's created, a perfect world, would look like, then maybe there's some interesting stuff in this passage that would apply to you. My second goal is that if you're a Christian here, I'd love us to be shaped in our thinking about heaven. Instead of looking at the language and the rhythm of 2016, that says if there was more of this, the world would be perfect, or your life would be perfect. Or if we could just solve this problem or get this solution, Actually, let's look at what the Bible's language and story is about heaven and how we can bring some of that to earth now. Okay, so hopefully you're keen to come on this journey with me if you fit in either of those categories. Let me just give us a a little bit of background as to the passage before we read it. The sermon today is called A White Stone. There's quite a lot of symbols in what I'm going to talk about. And so this first one, a white stone, it kind of sounds a little bit cryptic. So we're in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at what the passage says. We're also going to look at what does that mean to the original readers of that passage. And then we're going to say, well, how does that apply to us? I'm going to do a a Jackson 5. We're going to do the ABC and the 123 of this passage before we even read it. So the ABC is why would we even want to? Sometimes it's a good question to ask this. Why would we even want to study a letter that was written to a church 2,000 years ago or in the first century AD? Why bother? The ABC is this. Firstly, the section of the letter we're going to look at is addressed to a church way back in first century AD in modern day Turkey. But God is speaking not just to this church, but to this church as a representative of churches throughout time. And we as a church fit into that category a church throughout time. So God is speaking to us as well as to the original church. So we should have a listen. Jesus uses aspects of seven real churches in Revelation in order to paint a picture of the highs and lows of churches throughout history and right up to today. So the B is this section that we're looking at today is the third of seven churches. And actually, it's in a capital city, which is very secular. 
And we live in a capital city that is very secular. So hopefully you'll see there's a point in us looking at it because it applies to London. And see, well, this letter is part of an overall incredible section of the Bible, which is very forward-looking, looking into the future as to what is ahead for Christians and what is ahead for the whole world. So those would be reasons that we want to launch into it. I'm fine using this mic. Thanks. Okay, the one, two, three is about Pergamum. So the specific church, the third church out of the seven is in a place called Pergamum. It's in modern-day Turkey. And three things you need to know about it before we read this verse is, firstly, it was nicknamed Satan's Throne or Satan's Home. There is all kinds of non-Jesus worship going on in this city. So there's a temple to the emperor. There's a temple to Zeus. There's a temple to the goddess of like health and beauty and healing. There's a heck of a lot of sex we read about and lust and spirituality. And they're all kind of mixed up together. That's a bit of background. There is also like a sect or a cult or some type of teaching going on, not just in the city, but also in the church, that actually your soul is really important, but your body doesn't necessarily have to connect. So you can be spiritually right, but you can sleep with anybody you like. You can just be doing whatever you want with your body because it's not connected to your soul. And so it's important that we know that before reading this verse. Actually, that's something that has seeped into the church in this place. And thirdly, the church in Pergamum has a bit of a up and down. It's got a mixed bag in terms of its record. Firstly, there's a guy who we read about in Revelation who's died from the church, who has died for standing up for Jesus. So obviously some stuff's going on right. They're holding fast to the Jesus gospel. But also we read that this kind of influence of teaching, that you can sleep with anyone you want, you can do anything you like in terms of your fidelity in marriage or your sexual morality, because it's not connected to your soul, And God doesn't care about that. That had seeped into the church. They hadn't done a great job of cutting that off. So, there's your ABC 1, 2, 3. Let's read Revelation 2, 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, and we'll get into what that means, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. If you've been around church for a while, you know we're going to have some fun here. So, to the one who conquers, so we've got some kind of victor, we have got some hidden manna, and then we've got a white stone and some kind of secret about whose new name is on it. You can tell we're going to do a little bit of Bible study here to work out what's going on. This is going to be fun. I hope you're going to enjoy it with us. Okay. Revelation 101. If you want to work out what's going on in Revelation, you need to realize that the book is written using the literary device of symbology. There are a heck of a lot of images and symbols in Revelation. Sometimes they draw on familiar themes from the Bible. Sometimes they're just strange and original and Our verse is a little bit of a mixture of both. And so, you know, our our preaching on a Sunday shouldn't just be people telling you what the Bible definitely means. It should also be us equipping you to say, well, how can you find out what the Bible means for yourself, giving you some tools in your own Bible study? So in looking at a verse like this, you can't go far wrong if you stick to two principles. This is Revelation 101. With symbols and symbolic literature in the Bible... First of all, a good thing to say is, well, what else do we know in the rest of the Bible 
that links up with it. So you could say, how does that symbol relate to details and other symbols that are familiar in the Old Testament or the New Testament imaging and themes? So to try and think of the Bible as one big story and one big book rather than just this in isolation. So we're going to do that. We're going to look at that. But also, it's really important when reading a book like Revelation and looking at things like parables or stories or symbols to say, well, what would the original hearers, the original recipients of this letter have thought? So when John is writing down the words of Jesus, he's thinking of it for a particular audience. We need to get into our minds what would they have thought. So we're going to do that as well. So to the one who is victorious, let's start with that. So who is Jesus talking about here? Remember, this section is talking both to a church in Pergamon, but also to us as Redeemer, as part of God's church. But specifically in Pergamon, Jesus is saying these words, saying, guys, if you are faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you can cut off this wrong teaching, this false teaching, actually, you'd be deemed victorious. You'd have done a great job. Just stick into what Jesus taught. Just stick into the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'd be victorious. And so that's kind of what he's saying to the victor. Bear in mind that eventually you'll be rewarded in these ways. The hidden manner, we'll get to that. The white stone, we'll get to that. The new name, we'll get to that. But bear these things in mind, church, as you try to be victorious. Life, he's saying, isn't just about getting immediate satisfaction, but God is going to give you something better. Just stick in for the long road. But to us, Jesus is saying, Let me show you, Redeemer, some promises about utopia, some promises about heaven, some promises about some things to come. That as I'm promising it to this church, I'm also saying it's true for all believers, for anyone who responds to the message of Jesus. Okay, so some of the hidden manna. So I'm not going to assume that all of us necessarily know what manna is. And so we're going to look at what does this symbol actually mean by saying, what would this have meant to the original recipients of this letter in Pergamum? So, hidden manna. Well, manna was miracle food. So in the Old Testament, we read of the people of God wandering around in the desert, desperately needing provision in terms of sustenance and food. And they get something from heaven's kitchen. That's the way I like to look at it. It's quite a privilege. Get something rustled up by God's cooks, they get some manna that supernaturally appears. So it's like bread, supernaturally appears for them. And actually, it was a privilege for them to have something from God, such a privilege that actually some of the manna, stick with me here as we try and work out what this means, some of that manna, God instructed Moses to hide within the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant, for anyone who's not um, read much of the Old Testament, the Ark of Covenant is like where God's presence is, It's a really, really, really sacred and holy place. And so some of this manna was hidden in there even after God was providing it. So that helps us a little bit. What does this mean? What does this actually mean that God will give to the victor some hidden manna? Well, I'll put it here. Jesus says you will never need anything more than what he supplies now and forever. I think that's good. That's true. But specifically, he's saying to you guys in this city in Pergamon, right, if you stick in there, if you stick to the Jesus gospel, if you remember what I've taught and get rid of this other teaching, actually, if you decide not just to go for everything that goes past you, but to stay holy and pure, you know what I will do? I'm not just going to provide some provision for you. You're going to get some of this really exclusive 
access to the provision of the holiness of God, to the holy of holies of God. So it's like super favor. It's like amazing gift. He's saying, ultimately, you guys in eternity are going to get more than just manna. You're going to get something of the intimate provision of God. And actually, it's tied in with the presence of God, isn't it? That hidden manner, it doesn't just say manner, it's talking about this hidden manner, is something of the exclusive provision by the presence of God. I think that's amazing. What a great promise for those guys there. But for us as well. Jesus says, you will never need anything more than what he supplies now and forever. What a great promise. What a great way to start. In God's company, in his presence, up close and personal, in friendship with God. Wow. Okay. Nobody would have tapped into that manner. You know, it would have been locked away in the Ark of the Covenant and then the Ark of the Covenant was lost. But it's like a, a memory for them of there's something of the provision of God linked to the presence of God. And so it would have been amazing to the readers to be like, wow, you're going to give me some of the hidden manner? It's a symbol to say I'll provide for you supernaturally out of the best I've got, out of abundance. Okay, so the main... The title of this, series, of this sermon then is The White Stone. So let's look at the next one. The White Stone. What on earth does this mean? A white stone with a new name on it. Well, there's a really rich, deeper meaning symbol here. The White Stone with a new name. Actually, without us going back to be born when John was born and to be around there, we can't be 100% certain what the first thing that would have come to their mind would be. So we're using this Revelation 101, trying to think what the original hearers would have heard. We can't say for certain, can we, what they would have thought. But there are three things that I think probably would have come to mind. All three of them are amazing pictures about God, what, the type of thing that God would tell us about utopia. So we're going to go through them. Firstly, in the Old Testament, we read of the role of a high priest. So the great high priest in the Old Testament would have been the only person allowed to enter the presence of God. Nobody else could go into God's presence or know God personally. Nobody else could see God face to face, close, like a friend or intimately, other than this chosen person. So I'll draw a picture for you. So this high priest would go in through some curtains. So we're talking about in a, like the most crazy, glamping, luxurious tent you've ever seen. Then they go through a series of curtains to get into the Holy of Holies, the place of God, where God actually was present on earth. And then later on in the temple, it would have been, I mean, an even more glamorous, crazy, luxurious place. They'd still go through a series of curtains, cut off from everybody else to go into the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was. But what they'd have with them, I'll use my iPad as an example, is something connected to their chest, what's called the breastplate. And on the breastplate, there would have been 12 gems. Now, these gems are the reason that I think this would have come to mind when these guys started talking about stones. So the word stone could also mean gem in this. These stones on the breastplate would have had names inscribed on them. So you can see how giving you a stone with a new name on it might have meant something to do with the presence of God and the Holy of Holies and the High Priest. So the reason that they had 12 names on it was there were the 12 tribes of Judah. And effectively what was happening was there was only one guy on earth who could go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. And he said, I want to take with me representing the 12 tribes. So if you're in Israel, you wouldn't be able to go in. But at least your tribe would be named in the presence of God. He's kind of like mediating for you. People didn't go in. So as the priest went in, he brought requests and did his work in God's presence, bringing their names in too. So a stone with a new name written on it would be given 
to those to the victor in our verse, I think these guys in Pergamon would have th- thought, actually, this is talking about going in, access, my name on this stone. It's almost like this. Somebody like a better, greater high priest has come and said, I have bought you, not in a group, but you, your name, personal name, into the presence of God. But you know what? It's even better than that. Because the full picture is I've actually taken the curtain away altogether. And so it's a picture that you personally, actually you, can be in the presence of God. I am giving you, handing you the right, the access all areas pass to God himself. What a great picture. If that's what came to mind for them, that's amazing. And that's someone as Jesus. And that's Jesus who's speaking, saying, I'm giving you the stone. It's him saying, I'm handing you the access to my high priestly perfect work for you. And that ultimately is a little bit of utopia, isn't it? And maybe it's even a big bit. God's perfect plan is that we ourselves have access to know him and to be known by him, to be a friend of God, to be close to him. And Jesus isn't just saying that to Pergamum, he's saying that to us. That this is something that through the ages should be known in churches. You have access to the presence of God. I've summarized it this way. Jesus offers to give you ultimate access to know, experience, and be known by God. By name, now and forever. Now and forever. Okay, hopefully that's helpful. Also coming to mind for these guys in Pergamum, as they probably heard this letter read out, would be, okay, white stone. Maybe not a Bible picture, but something else that they would have thought of culturally was... That if you were a victor, like a winner in an Olympic Games, and Pete actually talked last week about how you'd be given a crown, like uh, maybe with some leaves on it. The other thing that you'd be given, Phil, you can come up and be uh, an example of a great athlete. Look at this man here. You would be handed as your kind of um, winning prize, as well as this little crown, you'd be given, I'll give you my phone as an example, Something like a golden ticket, a little bit like Willy Wonka. And so this golden ticket, what this gives to you is access to a victory banquet, a huge victory banquet. But also a little bit like if you you score the winning goal in an FA Cup final, you hear people say he'll never have to buy himself a pint again. You know, it's like key to the city type thing. You are pretty much invited to every party from now on forever. So Phil, this pass gives you not only access to the official banquet, but also to every party from then on because you've won the victory. But you know what? It wasn't an iPhone and it wasn't a golden ticket. What was actually given was a white stone. And on that stone would be the name of the victor. So you can see how Phil in Pergamum, here in this story, that would have come to mind. Even though it's not a Bible picture, it would be a cultural reference. Thank you, Phil. You did a great job. So... We're talking about victory then. It's a little bit like, I've got it written down here. Something of utopia in this verse is saying that a greater, a better victor, the winner of an ultimate battle has won access rights to a banquet. To a banquet for victors and he hands it to you with your personal name on it. Not with his name, with your personal name on it. Okay, let's get a little bit deeper into the gospel then. So Jesus is God, and you and I aren't. We can't get, by any right, access 
to anything of God's presence, his love, his kindness, his life, his adventure, his plan, his utopia, we can't earn that right. Our efforts are useless. And you know what? In the big picture, we're the losers. You know, we, we don't have anything that we've conquered or done that could access us. We've achieved nothing. By our nature, we are lost. and We're without God. But Jesus chose to provide a way for us. You know, Jesus even describes himself as the way to the Father, doesn't he? So there is a way, but that way to do so, Jesus came to earth. God became man. He made this one way for us to have a whole new life, if you like, a whole new name, a whole new start, to grant us access to God, closeness with God. So Jesus, by dying as a man, he actually experienced for the first time no access to God, didn't he? So he was cut off. But as he rose from the dead, when literally a curtain, back to this first one, was torn in two, he became the first man back from the grave. And in achieving that, for anyone he grants it to, he achieved the right to share this perfect access to God. Isn't God good? And so that is the victory party that is celebrated in Utopia. And so this banquet that Phil's invited to, this banquet that these guys in Pergamon are thinking about and referencing is the victory party of Jesus. The victor, Jesus, invites you to join him in freedom, to go from being lost and the loser (laughs) to being found and with the victor. By name, you're invited to that party. God's good, eh? Heaven's going to be a bit of a party. Okay, so I've summarized it as this. Jesus offers to give, oh, Jesus, the ultimate victor, Christus victor, offers to give you his victory reward of a new life and eternal freedom now and forever. What a great picture. I love that. Okay, so there's one other quick way that uh, the guys in Pergamon might have thought that this white stone was talking to them. And that would be, remember, there's this guy who's been killed. So a, a member of their church has been killed for standing up for sticking to his guns and saying, you know what, Jesus and Jesus alone is enough to satisfy me in a city where everything else is meant to satisfy me. He ends up being killed. He probably would have been through the court system. So the court system then would be the jury would pass judgment by putting a stone forward. So each juror would have a black or a white stone. And so if I think someone's guilty, there's a whole load of black stones go to the front. If he's innocent, then ultimately he'd be getting a load of white stones. So this is, again, a cultural picture might have come to mind. And this guy probably would have been given a load of black stones. So this would be real and raw for them. So here's the link. Even though we ultimately deserve punishment, another stood trial for our guilt. He was cast a black stone. He was killed despite living perfectly to earn the white stone. This man, Jesus, who says, I'll give you this white stone with a new name. He rose from the dead, having dealt with our black stone. And therefore, he now grants us his white stone, but with our name on it. A free gift of freedom from all judgment. I've summarized it this way. So Jesus offers to take your black stone punishment for anything you're guilty of and offers you his white stone by name, now and forever. And that's nothing short of absolute freedom. (laughs) God's good, isn't he? Man. Okay, so which of those three things would have come to mind? I think maybe all three. And I don't really mind if it was only two. They're all great things. But what really gets me in closing is that it's my name that gets to be on that stone in all three of them. Whether you think of the presence of God, whether you think of the victory of Jesus or the verdict of not guilty, 
It's my name. Actually, even better, this new name is talking about a new life, a fresh start. Not the old Rich Smith, but something new. And you know what I love about it is it says this thing about a name that only you would know. It's almost talking about something more personal than first name terms. It's like a nickname. It's like an in-joke between you and God. That's how close. It's like God's name for me. And I'll stand up. I don't believe this is literal. I don't think we're going to get to heaven and be given a white stone with a nickname on it. But I think what this is talking about is the intimacy that God wants with you. It's like nickname in-joke terms. I just think that means so much. It points to the fact that his call to me is even more personal. Jesus knows me. He knows the new life that he's calling me into very, very well. Okay, so to conclude, utopia, God's plan, and what should, as a Christian, our ideal, should be full access to God. Supernatural satisfaction and sustenance, and entry to the prize banquet. We're just going to read these four statements out again. Jesus says you'll never need anything more than what he supplies now and forever. Jesus offers to give you ultimate access to know, experience, and be known by God by name now and forever. Jesus, the ultimate victor, offers to give you his victory reward of a new life and eternal freedom now and forever. And Jesus offers to take your black stone punishment for anything you're guilty of, and he offers you his white stone. That's Jesus. That is Jesus. And have we done any of those things ourselves? I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? This is grace. We've earned none of these. These are somebody giving as a free gift to us a stone with our name on it, despite us not actually having done any of those things. Okay, so that's what the passage means. I'm just going to land it for a few different people. So um, if you here fit into the category of maybe you're a skeptic about church, about Jesus, about Christianity, what I want to say to you is, if you would ever ask the question, is this higher power Is a God out there knowable? Could I even know it? Could I know something about him or could I know him or it? Utopia is yes. Utopia is saying yes, you can. God is knowable. So maybe you fit into this first category. If there is a God, can I know him? And Adam in a minute is just going to explain a step that you can take, like a response to make, just to say, well, maybe I do want to know you. I don't know, maybe you do. Second category then, maybe you're a Christian here and you relate to God um, kind of impersonally. And so you say, yeah, God, I know you're the maker, you're the architect of my life, but maybe you've even been a Christian for a long time and you think, actually, functionally, although I believe God calls me by name, functionally, practically, I really just relate to God not in a very personal way. We're going to break bread. We're going to come to this table today. As you do so, let me encourage you, let me commend to you the grace of God that says it's a personal invitation. Adam shared earlier on a picture of just like a, a, a rubber royal seal on an envelope with a personal invitation. As you come and take the bread, I want you just to imagine a personal invitation for you today. I think that's, God wants to just see our church and churches restored to personal relationship. First name terms. Even better, you know, nickname terms. Come to the table with that attitude. Nickname terms. And then finally, I mean, I think we'd be silly if we looked at uh, an example of a church that Jesus speaks to and says, actually, it's not good that you're mixed up in terms of sexual immorality and like moral compromise. 
and you're not dealing with it. And then for us not to say that that applies to us. We live in a capital city full of secular teaching. <laughs> and so I just felt like as, as I was preparing it, it's good for us just to make this call. If you stand here today and you think, actually, I'm a Christian, but I've compromised on personal integrity, on fidelity, on biblical standards of sexual purity or just general moral compromise. Today, two things. One, come to the table and repent. Come to the table and turn from that. But two, remember this white stone that Jesus gives you. Come and repent, not with a heavy heart, but with a joy knowing that as you take the bread and wine, as you bring it to Jesus, he's saying, you know what? I did the hard work. I'm going to give you this white stone. You're the one who gets to go out of the court without a guilty verdict. So that's my encouragement to you. If you fit into those categories as a Christian, Adam's going to talk about how you can pick it up if you're a skeptic. Um, Let me just say to us as a church, as I'm preparing this, I'm just feeling Jesus saying, over and over again, this is grace. This is grace. This is grace for you. As you talk to people, as you disciple people, as you chat to people, let all of our conversation about Jesus and our access to God not be, do you feel far from God? Are you far from God? No. If you're a Christian, access rights are unprecedented. If you feel far from God, fine. I mean, maybe you've stepped away but God has not gone anywhere and your ticket is just as good as it was from day one so let me just remind you of that as well as we come and just have the banquet so I'll pass you over to Adam